pilot season has arrived for the Nerd by Word podcast as Chris and I each gave each other a homework assignment to check out the pilot of another's favorite show. What did we look at and what are our thoughts? The Nerd by Word starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome back to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, the best podcast if you need a nerdy fix every single week. Although there are very, very good uh, other nerd podcasts out there. Please don't come after us on social media. I apologize deeply. Thank you. Um, so I am Dave. I'm here with my buddy Chris. And this week we are going to dissect a couple of pilots, specifically the pilot for the cartoon Wolverine and the X-Men and my all-time favorite science fiction show, Farscape. And I can't wait to get into Farscape and see what Chris thought of the show. Just a quick disclaimer, we are not physically we are not physically dissecting uh, any human pilots or alien pilots. We're talking about the other use of the term. <laughs> now, wait, wait, wait a minute. You, you, you said we're not actually physically dissecting <laughs> crap, man. <laughs> you put my gonna, scalpel away. <laughs> I'm going to have to let Wolverine go here. I just got him tied up here, ready to dissect them. He heals fast. It'll be all right. Um, <laughs> before, we, before we dive into our dissection, let's go ahead and dive into... Now, Chris, I'm actually really excited about this trailer as well, although I know very little about the character. Well, uh, same, honestly. And I know that's weird about a Marvel character, but uh, so in stark contrast to recent MCU entries, we're looking at you, Spidey. Marvel Studios has erred on the side of discretion with their next exclusive Disney Plus series, Moon Knight. Fans were given the first full-length trailer this past week ahead of the show's release on March 30th, which is just around the corner wild to think about the footage features star oscar isaac sporting a nifty british accent dealing with a horrible boss chomping gum and just made nails across the chalkboard and experiencing a truly haunting experience uh with what some fans speculate to be the egyptian moon god Khonshu himself we are also treated to our first look at the villainous ethan hawk which is just amazing to think about who would appear to be a cult or spiritual leader of some sort it also appears that the series will tackle Mark Spector's uh, mental health and DID straight on if the trailer is any indication. Also, is he beating the ever-loving crap out of a werewolf? Uh, personally, I know next to nothing, so if, please feel free to correct any of my you know reports here. Uh, aside from the basic character readout about Moon Knight, so I'm excited for some uncharted territory. I'm a huge Oscar Isaac fan. I think he was criminally underused and or underserved in the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Uh, see those episodes where we fix the sequels for our thoughts uh, in much more expounded form there. And X-Men Apocalypse was one of the greatest disappointments of my nerd life. Why I decided to trust Fox X again is beyond me. With that being said, the current Moon Knight title by Judd McKay has come highly recommended by several friends and family members, and I do believe that I'll have to add that to my never-ending to-read pile. What are your thoughts, Dave? Yeah, so I've encountered Moon Knight uh, maybe a handful of times here and there in my various um, 
Marvel read-throughs of the last few weeks since I've got Marvel Unlimited. He pops up. Uh, the Ultimate version pops up in Ultimate Spider-Man a couple of times. Um, he pops up in Daredevil occasionally in a couple of the runs of Daredevil that I've read. Um, so I'm, I kind of get like the gist of the character as somebody who suffers from, from a form of split personality. Uh, but beyond that, he's kind of a blank slate for me. Now, I'm a big Oscar Isaac fan, uh, just as you are, and I'm very excited to see what he you know brings to this role. I think you know the, the suit looks really, really cool. Uh, I think the vibe that the trailer is going for is really, really cool. Um, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, and, and maybe you're not sure, but I don't think the the character that we see, the personality that we see in the trailer is necessarily the dominant personality. I think that's like they refer to him as Steven, but the dominant personality, the one who does all the moon knighting is Mark Spector. Right. right? That's my understanding. Yeah. So we're not we're not even seeing like, for the most part, the actual Moon Knight personality, uh, even in the trailer yet. So I'm very interested to see how, you know, Oscar Isaac tackles the various personalities um, and, and how he differentiates them. I think, you know, there's been some some really, really good performances like that in the past. I think uh, M. Night Shyamalan's Split comes to mind, which has like has really, really good like split personality performance, like one actor doing all these different characters. Um so I'm very, very excited to see what Oscar Isaac does with it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here for this, man. It just it, it struck the right tone for me. And I mean, it's it's got a werewolf apparently, or a lichen, or some kind of horror vibes, which also reminded me that Werewolf by Night with uh, Gael Garcia Bernal is coming, and that's freaking exciting as well. Look at me excited about horror stuff. What's going on? Now I find it fascinating, though. I. <sighs> You know, I'm I'm so new to like the deep Marvel lore stuff as I'm exploring all this stuff, but I want to say Moon Knight's original first appearance was in Werewolf by Night. I think so. That feels right. Maybe that's why they have like him fighting the werewolf in the trailer because it's sort of a tribute to his first appearance. I don't know. I'm, I have a lot to learn when it comes to Marvel. Right. I think. Yeah. Um, also, just on the on the part of you know different personalities and acting like that, that just reminds me of. Um, uh, Star Trek Picard, uh, one of my all-time favorite actors, Santiago Cabrera, which this is a non-nerd commendation, but go watch BBC's The Musketeers. It's as, as a huge Dumas fan, it's one of the best uh, adaptations of the property. But uh, so Santiago Cabrera doing, uh, like he's Captain Cristobal Rios. And so like he's a one-man crew like on his ship. And so he has created all of these holograms like a med officer, like a technician, like an engineer. And all, he does all these different accents as these different holograms. And it made me think of that, exactly that when you're saying that. So I'm super, super excited for this. Yeah, I can, I can totally echo that. All right, Dave, I saw this come across the timeline. I sent you the article and I was like, this is your bag right here. This is, this is groundbreaking. Yeah, let's just go ahead and say it. Microsoft has been accused many times of not having any games, and their response has been basically to buy all the games. <laughs> um, so we, we've already had this massive, massive acquisition last year, um, and now we have another massive acquisition as Microsoft is set to purchase Activision Blizzard, uh, which is, you know, like in, incredible. Uh, it's just like a complete paradigm shift in the gaming world. Now, we've talked uh, on the show before about Activision Blizzard and how they've been in battle due to um, a whole bunch of uh, revelations about uh, harassment, uh, you know, working conditions, uh, basically uh, being sort of one of the most toxic workplaces in gaming. 
Um, and there's not been a whole lot of accountability for that yet. And now Microsoft is swooping in, uh, I think taking a little bit of va- advantage of that perceived weakness on, on the part of Activision Blizzard. And the hope, I think, from a lot of fans is that they're going to basically come in and clean house and uh, you know, kind of bring Activision back to sort of its glory days. So Microsoft will acquire Activision Blizzard for, wait for it, $95 per share in an all-cash transaction that is valued at $68.7 billion. $68.7 billion with a B. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. I, I don't even know, man. <laughs> uh, what did Disney pay for Star Wars? Like $4.5 billion or something? Yeah. Like, this, is just, this is just a whole nother level. When the transaction closes, according to a press release by Microsoft, Microsoft will become the world's third largest gaming company by revenue behind Tencent and Sony. The planned acquisition includes iconic gaming franchises, and I actually got a full list that I want to talk about a little bit. Um, so Bobby Kotick, who is uh, the CEO of Activision Blizzard right now and is very much a controversial figure in, in this whole mess, um, is going to stay in charge for the time being until such time as this deal closes. And then at that point, uh, all Activision business will report directly to Phil Spencer, CEO, Microsoft Gaming. Uh, I think, I don't, I can't see a scenario where Bobby Kotick will have a, uh, a position with Activision Blizzard beyond this deal closing. I, I think if Microsoft wants to have sort of a clean break with the previous regime and, and all the bad press that has come with it, he is one of several people that's just going to have to go. Um, but, you know, getting away from like the, the business stuff and the cost and everything, I think we need to talk about this a little bit just as fans, right? And so as fans of gaming, the first thing we have to remember now is that everything Activision Blizzard, uh, once this deal closes, is going to be da 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 on Game Pass. Uh, and anything new that they create at that point will be day one on Game Pass. And this also, of course, raises many questions about exclusivity. Um, we had the same situation with Bethesda, where several games that had been announced already for Sony platforms are still coming to that. But Phil Spencer at the time said, and we're still seeing this play out, that future games would be decided if they're going to be on Sony's console on a case-by-case basis. And this this is a big deal because of the kind of stuff that uh, Activision Blizzard actually controls. So let's talk about some of this. Some of these franchises are ginormous. Some of these franchises are deeply associated with Sony's platform even. Um, but all of these will now be controlled by Xbox. Some of these IPs we've not heard of in many years and might make a comeback. In fact, um, Phil Spencer even mentioned that he's been looking at Activision's back catalog already of IPs. So we might start once Microsoft is in charge seeing some old IPs make a comeback. So I have a, a full list of IPs, but here are some, some highlights. First of all, I think we're going to have to talk about the elephant in the room, and that's Call of Duty. Uh, one of the biggest gaming franchises in the world. And not my cup of tea, I'm not big into military shooters, but it is undeniable that A, Call of Duty is a cash cow, B, it is widely popular, and C, if this sucker would go Xbox exclusive, it would be a complete paradigm shift in the gaming world. Um, Other things included here, Candy Crush of all things, Mobile moneymaker Candy Crush is now going to belong to Microsoft. What what will my grandmother do? What will my 75-year-old grandmother do? 
<laughs> uh, so Crash Crash Bandicoot, which is deeply associated Whoa. with uh, Sony's PlayStation, is Whoa. owned by Activision Blizzard right now. I yeah. did not know that. This is a live react. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Diablo is uh, the dungeon crawler. Uh, Diablo mm. is also very popular, particularly uh, uh, in the PC world, I believe. Uh, DJ Hero and Guitar Hero both owned by Activision Blizzard, so we might see a new Guitar Hero coming along. Um, sort of understated, but still very popular, Geometry Wars. Uh, there's been two of those so far. That's going to be owned now. There's a very, very cool Western game that came out, I want to say, in like the PlayStation 2 era called Gun. Um, mm. They've never actually made a follow-up to that, but that sucker is... Uh, owned by Activision Blizzard. Uh, Hexen, which has been a long time gone, uh, could make a comeback. King's Quest, those interactive uh, adventure games. Uh, Overwatch, one of the biggest you know, <laughs> games in the world right now for competitive gaming and the like. And they are actively developing Overwatch 2, which was just recently delayed. So there's a good chance Overwatch 2 could come out and, and maybe be Xbox exclusive. Oh, here's a good one. Pitfall, if you're feeling like talking about oh my the Atari. God. Uh, yeah, Pitfall is is an IP still owned by Activision. My, my toddler tears. My toddler tears cry out. <laughs> um, then you have Spyro the Dragon. Also, oh God, uh, that's very close. Love that game. Very, very closely associated with PlayStation and Sony. Um, the the oh, you know fans of this franchise have been clamoring for this to make a comeback, uh, and that's Time Shift. So if uh, if Microsoft has any brains, they're gonna they're gonna hit that. StarCraft, man. StarCraft is huge on the competitive scene. Huge. Um oh oh the text-based games from like a long time ago, Zork, <laughs> are, are owned by Activision Blizzard. Um there were a couple of really good shooters on PlayStation 2 called True Crime. That franchise is owned by Activision Blizzard. But if you want me to hit you with another really big one. World of Warcraft yep. is Activision yep, Blizzard. Yep, yep. So all of these things uh, would be included in this deal, as well as studios, including Infinity Ward, Raven Software, Sledgehammer Games, Toys for Bob, and Treyarch. I'm fairly certain Infinity Ward and Treyarch are both uh, pretty much Call of Duty studios at this point. Toys for Bob, if I remember correctly, did the recent um, remasters of Spyro the Dragon trilogy and Crash Bandicoot trilogy. So they they are very, very skilled. Um, so that means that Xbox is going to have a first-party roster of 30 gaming studios. So I think in the next few years, the criticism that Xbox does not have games is going to be a thing of the past, Chris. What do you think about the story? Yeah, and and just to follow up on your last point, it's gonna the goalpost will be moving, and it's already done. Like now, all of a sudden, I saw Sony gamers like this is a monopoly. We need to call into every becoming everybody became a corporate lawyer and they knew about antitrust laws and everything. So uh, it's it's wild. But I I can only say this, um, I can only say this as a consumer of Microsoft and Xbox content. Good God, Game Pass is just the rich keep getting richer and like the best the best keeps getting better. Like the one of my, my nerd commendation for today is one of those game uh, day one releases on game pass. And like, it's just crazy. And like games that previously I was not that interested in 
simply because I didn't want to dish out 60 or $70. But now if they're going to be included in Game Pass, I might dip my toe back into Call of Duty. I haven't played it since 2010 with my college buddies. So like I might get back into that. Um, God, Rock Band. I literally went on World Tour all four and a half years of college. I mean, like that's what I did. That's my college experience was, you know, with the... Uh, with with my uh you know rock band so this is just wild to me like i you know bethesda i was not as experienced as i am now like i've gotten some more context having played the fallout games i beat fallout 4 beat fallout 76 at least the main missions that online go between the fallout 76 i can take or leave um but so now that and and um the outer worlds that was probably my favorite of the bunch my only criticism it was just too short so like that's like big news the bethesda one you know, like even go looking back like if i was in a time machine like god that's a big one but this one i i i dropped my phone like i was just shooketh like i could not believe this this is this is an earth shattering this is this is when thanos gets the reality stone man like this is <laughs> groundbreaking stuff yeah, and and you know I'm I'm you know going to be carefully watching as as this progresses, just because I'm incredibly curious how Phil Spencer and Microsoft are going to handle uh, some of these franchises moving forward, particularly things that are you know extremely popular. Are we going to make these exclusive now to try to lock people into you know Game Pass and into Xbox, or at the very least, you know the Game Pass ecosystem? I mean, there's Game Pass for PC as well at this point, right? Um, or, or is there going to be um, is there going to be an effort to try to have certain franchises still across the board on multiple platforms? Like, I'm very, very curious about this because Xbox has a history of, of acquiring things and still leaving them on multiple platforms. Right. I mean, look at Minecraft. I mean, they, they bought Minecraft and it's still, I mean, it's on the it's switch. On yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's on everything. And so um, it's, it's, it's interesting to see, but see that, that case is also, it's all the same game, you know, that's just being updated. Like if they made a Minecraft two or something would mm -hmm. that sucker just be on game right. pass, would that be exclusive? Because we're talking really here about new games. I don't think they're going to go back and pull. Yeah. They're not going to retroact or something, yeah. but, but, but overwatch two, is that going to be exclusive? That's very difficult to tell where this is going to go. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very curious. Couple of points. First thing I, I meant to mention before was we we kind of gloss over me personally i do because i'm not a pc gamer but just like think about the fact that two of the greatest pc games world of warcraft and overwatch a lot of people play pc correct yes okay so microsoft you know probably the overwhelming like volume microsoft windows i mean like microsoft owning two of the biggest pc games ever like it's just just to let that sink in for a second. And then, you know, also, I forgot my second point, so we're still going to let that sink in. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's just, that's just wild to me. Oh, also, uh, so if we're talking about exclusivity, you mentioned exclusivity. So either they make it exclusive and they, I think, I don't know that they would do that, but it, I feel like what, like, sports leagues, like the NFL and NBA, like when they come to the bargaining table with ESPN and ABC and all these and, and NBC and, and all these other networks with the rights to distribute NFL, NBA, MLB content, they have all the leverage here. So Microsoft can go and say, listen, 
you like Call of Duty, you make a lot of money off of Call of Duty. This is we hold all the we hold your balls in our court, you know? Exactly. Alrighty, folks. Well, that is it for nerd news. Stick around because after the break, we're diving into pilot season. How do we feel about the pilot for Farscape and the pilot for Wolverine and the X-Men? Stick around. All right, folks, and we're back. And this week, it's time for pilot season. We're going to have two pilots that we are going to dissect. I assigned Chris Farscape, the pilot for Farscape, one of my all-time favorite science fiction shows. And he assigned me uh, the pilot for Wolverine and the X-Men, a animated series following the X-Men franchise. So now we're getting ready. We're going to dive in. It's time for... All right, Chris, so we have not talked too much about how we're going to handle this. So if, if you'd like, uh, since you are the perennial X-Men fan, we can go ahead and handle X-Men first. Um, can you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about Wolverine and the X-Men, the cartoon, what it is, uh, and some basic information before I dump on it? I mean, tell you how much I loved it. Whoa! Shots fired. <laughs> First and first and foremost, I must fully disclose that I intentionally assigned this to you so you could pronounce Wolverine appropriately with the German accent, um, with with the proper German W. Uh, no, um, <laughs> so this is actually a follow up to um, X Men Evolution, which has been a hit or a miss as I'm visiting that for the first time. But I remember watching Wolverine and the X Men and vastly enjoying it and you know um sources here uh are saying that it's based on joss whedon and john cassidy's astonishing x-men which i'm sorry for saying that first name from here on out we're going to strike that one from the record um but so it, it it's very much like a very unique jumping on point as far as the series goes but just here's a quick synopsis so um the story begins with Wolverine and Rogue having an argument about him leaving. Stop me if you've heard that before. Uh, when Wolverine goes to Charles and Jean Grey, they get headaches. An explosion occurs and Charles and Jean, both telepaths, disappear. The resulting trauma caused the X-Men team to disband and go their separate ways, leaving Xavier's once highly revered League of Mutant Peace Preservers out of commission. And so the story in the pilot, it, it, everything is very fast moving in the pilot. It goes very much flash forward into a year into the future and Wolverine is on the run as the Mutant Response Division, the Martys as they are uh, nicknamed, are, are out to get and lock up all mutants and they're human collaborators. Um, so it is a very, it very goes very fast into like a days of future past, if you will. Um, but one of the interesting notes that I saw, um, you know, diving in into this a second time around, cause I watched the pilot as well is the timeline of this is this was made in 2009, only ran for one season, 2009, 2010. And one of the executive producers, uh, you may have heard of him is Kevin Feige. So I think that was really, really interesting. But Dave, so we said, I believe, two likes and two dislikes on Wolverine and the X-Men uh, and Farscape, respectively. Yeah, I think we can definitely go for that. All right. So your reaction. 
So uh, I have a lot of positives to say about this cartoon. I watched obviously all three uh, first three episodes since that sort of formed the pilot. So 66 minutes of X-Men goodness, so to speak. Um, and, and I will admit um, th- there was a lot to like here, but I was also a little confused as to um, what this was connected with. Um, I've, I've watched a little bit of X-Men evolution, but I didn't really feel like the characters kind of matched up to that. Um, there was a lot of, there were a lot of nods to like the, the nineties animated series in there too. Um, uh, particularly in like, you know, some designs like rogues outfit is very much a callback to that. For example, the music in the beginning feels almost like a slowed down version of the original X-Men theme. Like I had to, I had to listen to it like three, four times. And I was like, yeah, I feel like that's in there, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure if this is supposed to be standalone or connected to anything, but it felt like, you know, with all the, the nods to the nine to the nineties series, like they're almost trying to go with a connection to that. But at the same time, the character relationships didn't quite feel right. I don't know. So first big like was the animation. I really like uh, what they did here. They did something that you see a lot in um, sort of the nineties DC animated stuff where they used very simple, clear lines, uh, nothing really overdrawn. And because uh, everything was very clear and clean cut with very simple lines that were able to animate it very fluidly. And I think that works really well, particularly in the action scenes in Wolverine and the X-Men. Um, I really, really enjoyed, um, you know, the, the, the all the action and the way, how fluid everything felt. Um, and I did really like uh, a lot of the callbacks to the 90s designs. I think, you know, as, many, as often as I look at like... Um, various comic books these days are from Marvel. And, you know, I, I'm not reading current X-Men actively, but I've read a couple of older runs. Um, and I have read some uh, Miss Marvel where Rogue pops up, for example, a few times, or some new Avengers where some X-Men pop up. And one of the things I notice is that for the most part, um, none of the looks are nearly as iconic for those core characters that were in the nineties cartoon as they were back then. Like, I think that that look for rogue is, is fantastic and iconic and any other look never quite measures up. And so seeing that revisited was really, really, really cool. Um, so I really liked the animation. I really liked the callbacks to the nineties series. I think those worked extremely well. What are your thoughts on those, Chris? Yeah, so I, I also like the the animation. It's not like overly complicated. Um, as far as like the character designs, this is my all time favorite outfit for Cyclops, the trench coat. There's just something cool about the trench coat. So that's my I agree my with far that, yeah. and away thing. It's just so cool. Like Cyclops is an interesting character that I have a complicated relationship with, but um, I think everybody does, Chris. Specifically after. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis' take on Uncanny X-Men, where he becomes like the second coming of Magneto as this mutant revolutionary standing up for mutant rights and just like the trajectory of that character, um, the going from the wide-eyed Boy Scout who becomes disillusioned with his mentor and like really starts to stand up on his own two legs for what he believes to be the right thing is just a really fascinating arc for me. And so he's become... Um, fr- he's gone from being like oh the goody two shoes to one of my all time favorite X Men characters, and you know, kind of the seeds are seeds are planted in that um, in this pilot uh, kind of, with this trio of episodes, as you said, and 
kind of gives him some more kind of shadowy, um, not shadowy, but like more depth of, of character. And also the goddess Emma Frost, who I, I was hopeful, hopelessly wrong about and, and have thankfully come around on. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I'm a big fan of the, the animation and, um, and these kind of this, this hodgepodge of designs. And there's a lot that I like about the designs and the layout of X-Men Evolution. Just plot wise, it doesn't really, I'm still in the first season and everybody tells me to get to the second season, but there's a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to plot wise. I do enjoy the characters that are featured in both Evolution and this one a little bit more as opposed to um, the original animated series, if I'm being honest. But but some of the plot stuff in Evolution is is really egregious for me. Let me ask you this, because I was trying to figure this out. The only time that I can recall um, them really leaning into the relationship between Rogue and Wolverine the way they do in, in Wolverine and X-Men is in the Fox X-Men movies. Right. Does, does X-Men Evolution have that relationship as well? Because I couldn't quite figure out where that came no, from. No, like I said, I think this is a, a hodgepodge of things. And I will say that one of the feathers in the cap of X-Men Evolution that I've enjoyed the most is they really go for that goth version of Rogue and it works so much better than the movies because it, it like it really tackles that aspect of like oh I don't know like the inability to touch people to have close personal relationships but it's handled much better you know um, in, in X-Men Evolution um, and she doesn't, doesn't come across as just just this whiny wimp like um unfortunately she does in the films but yeah that's the only other time in comics or film or animation that i can think of a close relationship between those two characters specifically now wolverine in my opinion is at his best when he is juxtaposed to those young impressionable pull the best out of him type of characters. You see that in the animated series and the late eighties and early nineties comics with Jubilee. With Jubilee. Yeah. You also see it a lot throughout the eighties with Kitty pride. Um, so I think he's his best. And I think they, they kind of just switched up the character, but the inspiration remains true there. Now, now if you don't mind, I'd like to throw in one bonus like in there because yeah. All of the things I liked are not really massive things that I can talk about for like eight years. Right. But there were a whole bunch of little things I really liked about it. And and I know this is going to be um, an unpopular take among um, your X-Men brethren, and, <laughs> you know, X of words and social media and all that. But I really like when the X-Men are quote unquote cape. And this is exactly what this is. This is X-Men, you know, very much as superheroes still you know the idea that they're going out there and they're helping people they're helping people that maybe even hate them like the whole thing in the in the first part where wolverine saves that family Mm -hmm. and then they try to reciprocate and then you know he endangers them and he decides to go and save them like this to me is probably my favorite version still of x-men is when when they there's a a healthy injection of the superhero thing right and i know that's not that's not necessarily the angle that modern x-men comic books are taking and maybe that's one of the reasons i failed to connect with it a little bit um but i really really enjoy you know wolverine even like 
I, I love the whole the whole sequence where he's just like driving on his motorcycle and he sees like the smoke in the background. And he's like, I'm getting out of here. And then, yeah. he, you know, kind of side eyes and it's like, ah, oh, crap, I have to go help somebody like, you know, even even Jada jerky Wolverine is yeah. like, I'm going to help people. And, and I really I really still appreciate that because there is something I, you, you get some of that in Spider-Man, but it's a little mm-hmm. different. Um, I, I think that's one of the things that makes the X-Men franchise so unique is that they are not, you know, the X-Men tries to save people. They are superheroes in, in right. a lot of ways, but they are not celebrated by the people that they try to save in most cases. They are hated, and yet they still go out there and, and, and try to save people. And I think there's something inspirational about that, and it's still one of my favorite aspects of that franchise. So I think that's one of the reasons why um, the the run of He Who Must Not Be Named on X-Men was something that I, at the time, connected with because it was sort of a reaction to Grant Morrison's run. And it was like, no, 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 the X-Men are cape like we we are we are doing we're we are doing superhero stuff you know so i i, I know that's not a popular opinion these days but it is something that i connect no with. very much so no um i think the the there's a very clear line in the sand for me uh what i appreciate uh specifically with this this family uh in the first arc is or, or even specifically the first episode is you need human allies and you need people that see you and recognize you and your humanity. Um, and so, like, I am all for that. The ones where it crosses the line for me and it makes me roll my eyes into the back of my skull is where it's people who are abjectly venomous or hate spewing towards you. And so if you're if you like that aspect of it, I highly, highly, highly recommend the current run, like right now, the this volume that rebooted as X-Men number one under Jerry Jerry Duggan. Um, the art is phenomenal by Pepe Larraz and uh, colors by Marte Gracia. They are an absolute dream team. But the whole premise of this is now that we've established our own nation on Krakoa, they've built this treehouse. It's literally a treehouse in Central Park. And it, it's very much like almost like a Krakoan embassy to the United States and the world at large. And so they are back to doing superhero. <laughs> but it is like it's it's a very clear line in the sand. Like we have our sovereignty. We have our basic rights, inalienable rights. But we will go save these people like and and here's my favorite part of the first couple of issues is they save the team, they save the country, and then they go have like a barbecue or a feast of the local cuisine. So I think they go to a place in Asia and then they have like, uh, I think it's Vietnamese like barbecue. And then they go to Oklahoma and then they have like Oklahoma barbecue. Like it's really great. So all those aspects that you're, you're wanting and seeking, I think the, the Jonathan Hickman volume uh, that you're referencing is very much like this world building thing, like go figure it's Jonathan Hickman. And so like that is setting up the new status quo for X-Men going forward, because um, that's the new normal, if you will. But if you're looking for Cape, then definitely check out Jerry Duggan's run, which were only like six issues in. Now, see, that's interesting to me. And I have to ask the, uh, the important question. If I skipped out on all of this world building stuff, Am I still going to be able to follow what Jerry Duggan is doing right now? Yeah, for sure. I there will be several callbacks specifically 
I'm thinking in reference to the Hellfire Gala, and that is um, like the X-Men elections that we had last year, and we just finished up the second one. We haven't seen the results of yet, but um, you'll see like speeches telepathically given of why these this current roster wants to be on the X-Men. And so I think it's a very fair jumping on point, and I don't think you're going to be missing out on a lot. I see that now. Now, now I'm sold. I might have to check that out. Yes, my mutant agenda spreads. Yeah, well, as long as as long as there's a superhero angle to it, I'm probably there for it. Okay, so you've got some dislikes. Let's get into it. So you went on a ram uh, on a rambling tirade regarding X Men a few weeks ago. Um, I can't pinpoint which episode because those rambling tirades happen quite frequently. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you said if they blow up that school one more time and rebuild it and go back to it, I'm going to lose it. And Guess and what they I've, did? Yeah. Well, the thing is, watching this for the first time, I felt a little bit of that. Um, I think there's, there's a very rehashy element to it. And for the first time, I think I really understand why... Hickman's run is such a clean break and tries to do something so different because it feels like such a a rehash in a lot of ways. Oh, the school was attacked. Oh, they rebuilt. Oh, the Sentinels are coming. You know? Oh, there's Senator Kelly on his tirade again. You know, it's it's it seems that I've seen this before. And even as somebody who is not, you know, reading x-men comic books religiously like like you are right um I've, I've i've read a couple of runs you know i've read morrison's and i've seen some stuff there that is reminiscent of this here i've i've read that other run yeah uh, which is reminiscent of some stuff we've seen here i've seen the fox x-men movies i watched the 90s x-men cartoon i watched several episodes of x-men evolution and at some point i'm like dude this is the same stuff Again, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it's it's an adaptation of a very specific era of X-Men, a very specific snapshot that has a very specific feel and goes through very specific things. You know, there's the danger room, there's Cerebro, you know, yeah. all the little pieces are there. And at that point, I felt like... Um, I felt like I can't, it was predictable, like I could right. kind of just see what was coming. Uh, um, I'll also say, as an additional dislike... I feel like this is very much of its era and that they had to make Wolverine the guy in charge. Yes. You know, the the guy who's the loner has to be in charge because he's the most popular X-Man and so he has to be in everything. He's he's basically become Marvel Comics as Batman and that he has to be everywhere and do everything. Uh and and so that that was problematic. And as a as a final thing, some of the character designs rubbed me really wrong. I don't know what was going on with Toad's hair in this thing <laughs> and the and and I am vehemently, vehemently opposed, and I don't know why this rubbed me the wrong way so bad, but I am vehemently opposed to Kitty Pride having pigtails. There was something <laughs> about that that made me extremely uncomfortable. Like that scene when she's on the boat and she's heading for Genosha, and she's got her hair down. I'm like, okay, leave it like that now. You know, because the, the first sequence we saw her in was a flashback where she was extremely whiny, too, on top of everything else. But then, sure enough, you know, when she comes back to the X-Men, there's the pigtails again. And I'm like, this look does not work for Kitty Pride. It's it's just so, so weird. Don't do pigtails. Don't, don't do pigtails on superheroes, period, would be my advice. I don't think they would work on Superman either. Like, just 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 avoid pigtails on superheroes, I think, is my is my thing like i do not want to look at a superhero and think oh it's a it's a you know it's a nine-year-old girl like this is this is really creepy 
Yeah, uh, you talk about uh, Toad. Toad can't quite seem to to stick the landing when it comes to character design. Now, here's one for you. I remember when X of Words did this challenge of like, who's your most embarrassing mutant crush? And someone said X-Men Evolution Toad with the green tongue and green teeth. And uh, I clocked out for the day. I left Twitter for the rest of the day. That's probably a good move. Yeah, that's that's messed up. (laughs) Yeah. So, what are your thoughts about some of my dislikes, Chris? All right. Yeah. So, uh, you don't you don't have to. I mean, like, I see previous rant. Yeah. Um, and I you hit the nail on the head. Uh, Wolverine, even now. I mean, for goodness sake, he, for all intents and purposes, has two solo books. He has Wolverine, and X Force is just uh, a Wolverine solo in a different outfit. It is basically his his book with some supporting characters. Um, And then, you know, so he is very much the Batman of the mutants or, you know, the Tony Stark of the mutants, if you will, in the MCU uh, scheme of things, where literally every villain is is spawned out of his actions and greed and everything. So it's it it is very much so. Uh, There's also a comic book called Wolverine and the X-Men that I enjoyed greater parts of it. Um, it'll probably be a, a, a nerd commendation soon and very soon, but there's, and there, there's a, like I said, there's lots of parts I like about it. Some of the character work that's done in there, but just the idea of Wolverine being the head of, at that time, the Jean Grey Institute for Higher Learning. It was just like, a, come on, come on. You're just, you're just peddling the popularity at this point. Yeah. So that, that was problematic for me. Uh, and again, it is an enjoyable cartoon. And I've seen, you know, I did a little bit of research and I've seen several places um, online still clamoring for a season two, which apparently became the victim of uh, the Disney purchase of Marvel back in the day. Um, and, and I understand that because, you know, my, my favorite Spider-Man cartoon, Spectacular Spider-Man, also died on the vine because of that purchase. Um, so I, I understand that and understand that this thing is extremely popular. And it is a, I think it's a really decent representation of a very specific era of X-Men and a very specific type of X-Men storytelling. But at the same time, um, given, you know, the, the Fox X-Men uh, movies and the previous cartoons, um, a lot of it just felt kind of rehashed, which is, which is sad. I, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, trying to s- strike out on your own and, and, and get some bold originality w- would have been fun here. Um, it's good. I mean, I can't deny that it's qualitatively a, a very good cartoon in a lot of ways, production-wise, writing-wise. It really works. Um, but the rehash part of it just bugged me. Yeah, I will say one quick, one more quick shout-out. Um, one of the primary writers on this show is Craig Kyle, um, who together with Chris uh, Yost has, is writing the, the volume of uh, New X-Men Volume 2, that I'm reading right now and the Academy X era. So if you're following me on Twitter, you're probably seeing a lot of my tweets about my first time reading this era of X-Men and, and a lot of that is injected there. So you see a lot of the Academy X kids who I've come to adore, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, I think we talked about this in person. You popped by my classroom the other day is, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, generationally specifically with x-men it's like oh if you're an 80s kid the new mutants is your era uh if you're a 90s kid it's gen x and then if you're a 2000s kid it's academy x so i identify personally 
with generation x but like you know maybe it's like the teacher or the father in me like seeing these kids get screen time like these widely unknown characters like you met one of my new favorite characters Soraya Kadir Dust, one of the very few openly Muslim characters in all of comics, get screen yes. time and take out a whole helicopter by herself. She's a goddess. I love her. So seeing that was super cool. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I, I really liked um, some of the some of the characters that popped up in the background, at least the pilot. And I hope that the the series kind of continued that on. Also, our boy being front and center, Kurt Wagner, is always a plus. There, there is nothing wrong with German people being the good guy occasionally. They're not all Nazis. <laughs> I just want to remind everybody of that. <laughs> all right, Dave, any more final thoughts on Wolverine and the X-Men? I mean, you know, if I had to, you know, recommend it, I certainly would. Uh, it's, it's very, very good. I would uh, probably also say that uh, I'll, I'll finish watching it. It's on Disney Plus right now, so it's, a, it's an easy watch. There's only one season of it. Um, so I'll probably go ahead and go through this this whole storyline and see what they did with it. Um, is is it necessarily like groundbreaking or revolutionary in some way? I would say probably not. Uh, but at the same time, if you if you're looking for good X Men stuff uh, of a certain bend, I think this is probably a good place to go. Yeah, and and good X Men video content is hard to come by. So, um, speaking of agendas, I have my radical mutant agenda. You have a radical agenda of a different sort, Dave. Yeah, I'm a radical escaper, you could say. I'm a huge fan of the Australian American science fiction television series Farscape, which ran on the Sci Fi Channel from uh, March of uh, 1999. Uh, through, I want to say 2004, um, before it was canceled on a cliffhanger and then returned with a mini series to wrap up the story. Um, this sucker is by far my all time favorite science fiction show. And I have watched quite a few of them. Yes. I like this thing better than Star Trek deep space nine, because once it gets rolling, it is one of the most complex as far as characters, character interaction, storylines. It's, it's absolutely bar setting when it comes to science fiction storytelling. Um, and I know that doesn't always come across in the pilot, Chris, and I'm interested to talk about that. It does take a little time to find its footing, but when it does, it's it's probably one of the most single most influential science fiction shows that nobody seems to really know or care about, which is regrettable because so much of what they pioneered on this show is still reverberating through science fiction today. So uh, I'm very, very excited uh, for you to discuss the pilot a little bit, um, just to go through a, a really, really short sort of... Um, blurb for those people who don't know much about it uh there's an astronaut a scientist slash astronaut john Crichton, who is testing a new form of propulsion uh and is thrown through a wormhole uh he finds himself in the middle of an escape attempt uh of moya a living spaceship which has been sort of enslaved by uh, a military group called the peacekeepers um, it is used as a prison transport, and so when Moya manages to escape, uh, it's basically full of a whole bunch of criminals uh, and, of course, uh, John Crichton, who now is stuck with this crew on the other side of the universe, it seems like, um, trying to find a way back home. So, Chris, let's go ahead and talk about the stuff you liked first, because, uh, you know, I I'll tell you, shots fired when you start talking about the stuff you didn't like. 
So, first and foremost, before we even get into likes or dislikes, I'm just going to give our listeners a peek behind the curtain because I was texting you while I was watching this. So, I'm just going to paraphrase our exchange. Um, so, first and foremost, background. Like, I remember where I was in the hallway at our place of work when you first said the word Farscape to me. And so I remember this was probably like 2014. We were fresh off of the only the only time we gotten a chance before COVID and everything to go to the movies together is we saw the first volume of Guardians of the Galaxy. And so I remember very shortly thereafter, not too far away from my classroom in the hallway, you said, if you love that, let me tell you about my radical Farscape agenda. That is correct. <laughs> so just to summarize our text exchange, I said... This is like Guardians of the Galaxy by James Gunn, um, Doctor Who, and the Jim Henson Muppet Company had a menage a trois, and this was their love child. And it's a beautiful love child, Chris. It's so beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, and they broadcast it on the USA Network. But sci-fi is not too far off, so that makes all the sense in the world. But yeah, so my first big like is just the weirdness and the oddity and leaning into the love of science fiction. So if you love sci-fi, like, I mean, this is it. Like, I really love how they give these these aliens these intricate backstories, even if the one dude whose name is escaping me is a direct representation of a Klingon, um, but more in a crustacean form. So, um, so like, I still appreciate that this whole Viking Klingon, like sense of honor, warrior class. Uh, I think a trope like that while inescapable is delightful to me. Um, maybe that's my Viking blood and my ancestry speaking, but, um, the priestess chick, uh, the blue lady, sorry, names are escaping me. Let me get it pulled up here. Uh, Virginia, Hay- Virginia Hayes character was particularly, uh, uh, interesting in the duality of that to be this religious figure, but like this openly sexual character was pretty cool. And like, it's not just like a one note type of character. And, and again, we're dealing with the complexity of making a judgment based off of one pilot, one episode. And like you admitted, like it takes uh, an episode or two for it to find its footing, but when it gets going, so I'm going off of this with just the pilot only. Um, but far and away, my favorite character, uh, and I'm I'm an easy to please type of guy. If you give me a strong badass female, I mean I'm good to go. So Aaron soon played by Claudia Black is far and away the best thing about this pilot. Um, ben Browder's character was was okay. I could see uh, the the rattlers in the stomach was a, a, some something that was said, um, and the the whole nepotism of his dad is like not 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 for everything. But I think he he has shows some promise going forward that I look forward to following. Um, so the the first big overarching like was leaning into the love of science fiction and just the absurd oddity and the things that I still like. I have so much on my list to go back to Chris Eccleston's Doctor Who, just like the bonkers bonkers aspects of that that i truly enjoyed uh going back into that like we're very much present here and then the interplay between the characters is 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 very similar so my likes are kind of a two-in-one type of deal um 
and just like their their conversations back and forth and like how quickly they develop relationships even though they're literally thrown together and they kind of develop relationships and dependability upon one another like just in such a rapid pace and it is pretty cool to see so those are my two big likes coming out of that see the wonderful thing is about farscape is that the pilot is probably one of the least bonkers episodes um so i remember reading an interview um about an episode where they do you know the whole body swapping trope yeah and the writer i think it was the writer one of the producers said you know in most science fiction shows you'd have a couple of characters swap bodies and then by the end of the episode everything is restored um so we decided we're going to do it a little differently. So everybody on the ship swapped bodies and we didn't do it once. We did it twice. So halfway through the episode, you get to get disoriented again because you don't know who's in whose body all over again. And it is, it's still one of my favorite episodes at one, at one point they're like printing out pictures of everybody and like hanging the actual person who's in the body around their neck. So you can try to figure out who you're talking to. It just always goes that extra mile to lean into, you know, how can we make this, stronger weirder faster more odd um and, and it's one of the things i absolutely love about the show and i'm really really glad that you like that part about it too because if you decide to move forward and watch more of this uh, as the show moves forward it becomes increasingly weird you have not met <laughs> one of the greatest bad guys since darth vader yet in this show you have not met harvey the hallucination that john Crichton talks to in his brain all the time you have not met Captain Cleavage yet. That that is not her name, but that is a nickname <laughs> Crichton gives her, and it is it is so accurate. It is so accurate. Um, you have there's so many good things and over the top things and wild and weird and 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 absolutely fascinating going on here. And you know the reason that I told you back in the day about like how much I loved the first volume of Guardians of the Galaxy and how much I recognize the characters is because you can draw a strong one-to-one corollary between characters. Crichton is very much the Star-Lord character. Dargo is very much the Drax character. Rigel is basically the, the template for Rocket, you know, selfish, out for himself, always getting the rest in trouble. Aaron is, is Gamora for all intents and purposes, the bad guy that, you know, is now on the side of the good guys. And and Groot, believe it or not, is is sort of modeled on on Zan because, well, she's a plant. I mean, that's like one of the big things about her character. You find out is that she's a plant. So, so it's like it's like almost a one to one translation. Um, and although all, all the relationships don't necessarily translate in the same way, the base template, the characters feel very much the same, and that interplay between those characters. Um, is is one of the most important things of that show and it only gets better as it goes you know the, the deep friendship develops between Crichton and dargo that is one of the most fun things to watch when those two get in trouble together um rigel is is the is the perfect you know jerk with a heart of gold that he does a very good job of hiding sometimes um and the love story between between Crichton and aaron is probably one of the most epic love stories in science fiction um and it's kind of how I hooked my wife on the show. My wife is not a huge science fiction fan. Um, and I said, look, there's this amazing epic love story in this show. And if you give this a few episodes, you you are going to love this show. And by the time we finished it, she said that was the best thing I ever watched in my life. <laughs> like she, she absolutely adores this show. As somebody who is 
very much a novice in science fiction. So yeah, the, the things that you point out are two of the things that I love most about that show, that it's willing to go epically weird and that it has such a clear understanding of its characters early on and it, and does, frankly, a fantastic job growing those relationships as it moves forward. And didn't you say, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that James Gunn directly references this in an interview somewhere? Yeah, I seem to recall reading an interview where he says, yeah, he was a very, very big Farscape fan. Um, and it just it just shows. It's it's absolutely undeniable. So uh, a quick n- uh, note of research, and you can find this interview just by Googling James Gunn Farscape. But um, uh, he was responding to a fan question about Farscape's influence on uh, Twitter. And uh, he said, people are always bringing up a million films asking me if they're the inspirations. Usually the answer is no. In the case of hashtag Farscape, it is most definitely yes. So uh, he he was a, a very big Farscape fan. Uh, he said that in, I think, uh, an interview at one point at a, like a retrospective about Farscape, I seem to recall. Um, and so he he's freely admitted that Farscape was sort of a template that he used uh, when when creating Guardians of the Galaxy. And I think you know, just especially as you watch the show further, if you decide to do that, Chris, that it becomes it becomes significantly clearer as you go. All right, Chris, I guess we're ready to talk about some dislikes. <laughs> watch your step. Um, I gotta go with uh, the mushroom Muppets. The mushroom Muppets. Uh... And as far as Rigel and Pilot were particularly just disconcerting, um, I, there was a bit of jump scare, I think, when Rigel pops up in several places and just the puppet puppetiness of it all um, was is just not my cup of tea. Now, you know, judging this off of one episode uh, and, and based on your comments on the character, it uh, looks like, uh, you know, I'll have to revisit this opinion coming up, but it was it was it was just not my favorite thing about it um and then just the 1999 of it all it's it, 1999 was a year that that stands out in time and so like the the production is very very much a product of its time and that's i think it's a blessing and a curse like nostalgia wise uh, you know i always think back fondly about 1999 and the things that were happening then in my life and the movies and the shows that were happening and so it's it's a double-edged sword but then at the same time like we've come a long way as far as special effects have gone um but so more like nitpicks rather than dislikes but the mushroom muppets were probably the bigger one of the two now see um the 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 whole uh, it being a product of its time i totally understand that that reaction uh, it doesn't help that as the whole thing goes on um Crichton becomes sort of a microcosm of of late 90s early 2000s pop culture the way star lord is constantly mm-hmm. like referencing the late 70s and 80s um so you you'll you'll hear him you know whip out like catchphrases from stone cold steve austin and stuff and all the aliens <laughs> look at him like he's lost his mind and that kind of thing um so there is there is a healthy dose of that um and i can see how some of that could be um could not connect especially if you're not of that generation um but to me that that motor mouthness and that pop culture savviness of Crichton and how he constantly is throwing out these things and all the aliens are like, you've lost your mind yeah. becomes sort of almost an endearing sort of, sort of thing. So 
um, I think I think you would find that 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 fades a little bit with time. Now I'll freely admit the special effects are rough around the edges because you know it is an older show, but they do improve as the series goes on. I even think by the time season four comes along, they go from full screen to anamorphic widescreen, and the show looks looks very nice uh, at that point. Um, but but this show was, I think, in a lot of ways, very much beleaguered through much of its run. Um, you know, they, they they got decent ratings on the Sci-Fi Channel for sure, but they never got um, a whole lot of cash to do what they right. were trying to do. And so, you know, corners had to be cut. Very much like Doctor Who uh, being on a shoestring budget and, and going a little weird sometimes with its special effects just to make it work. Um, there's also, and I think I need to point this out, there's a really, really rough history there in that after season three, Farscape was picked up officially for season four and five. Uh, so they got a two-season pickup, and they were planning their story accordingly. And then at the end of season four, from one moment to the next, basically, uh, the show was canceled and ended on a cliffhanger that I literally screamed at the TV about. It, it's one of the you know like one of the roughest cliffhangers you've ever seen in a show, and and you're sitting there going, "This cannot be it. This cannot be the end." And thankfully, it did come back with a mini series to basically sort of do an accelerated version of what would have been season five. And and thank God for that. Um, as far as the Muppet thing, and I really want to answer this really quickly. My problem, oftentimes with space based shows, particularly I'm looking at you, Star Trek, you little jerk, is that they never are willing to let their aliens be truly alien. Um, everything has to be played by a human being. And because of that, basically what you got, uh, I think a lot of fans refer to it basically as bumpy forehead syndrome. It's like we have to have some kind of makeup to show that these are aliens, but we can't cover up their faces completely because then, you know, we don't get the acting. So we're just going to give them various forms of bumpy foreheads, weirdly shaped ears, or various bald caps. And that seems to be sort of the number one thing that Star Trek has done over... Uh, thousands of hours of television at this point and it makes the 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 galaxy seem very uniform and i don't want to necessarily see boring but there is not a whole lot of variety i mean everybody's humanoid you know exactly you know so although i understand that the the puppet thing is jarring because it's not actually you know it's it's never really been done before except for maybe like you know in star wars a little bit with yoda it's interesting yeah is, you say that i think it's i think it's just done a little bit better in star wars than it is well, at least know, big, in this first episode well big production and everything right. you know but yeah you have to I, take so that will, into account yeah so i will say if you're willing to suspend your disbelief on the puppet stuff a little bit um one of the coolest things about this show is how absolutely bonkers the aliens are that you encounter in the show it, that they they are willing to go truly truly alien so when you're talking about rigel for example um his whole culture and and how all that you know works and how he was you know a dominar king and all that it becomes absolutely fascinating and pilot which is i think where the mushroom part of the mushroom muppet thing comes from um Pilot in particular becomes this incredibly deep character. I know you will not believe this based off the pilot, uh, but the character of Pilot, why he is, you know, in Moya, why he is, you know, connected to Moya, literally physically, uh, all of that stuff and, and the decision making behind that and what his race of people are like. And it he he becomes one of the most heartfelt characters in that show. 
And I think the puppetry improves a little as it goes on. I'm not going to say that it's never not completely jarring a little bit, but I think it works towards the alienness of the aliens. And that is something I deeply appreciate because my God, if I see one more alien, that's just basically a guy with pointy ears or a bumpy forehead. <laughs> it is so it is so limiting to the yeah. imagination when science fiction is supposed to be so wide open, you know? And and so is is it the greatest production value not not necessarily it is it is tough to pull off really truly alien aliens without extensive use of cgi and a really really strong budget but the approach that they took i'm telling you man some of the puppets that they end up uh, showing up with on this show are absolutely incredible and and really some of the most alien crap you can imagine and for that at least i appreciate that a lot well and now i may have to reevaluate my assessment after looking uh, at pictures of Jonathan Hardy, the actor who portrayed the the voice of Rigel, uh, it might be a little bit closer to spot on uh, representation. <laughs> Lord, Lord rest him <laughs> of what Rigel looks like on screen. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something else. Uh, that's that's sort of a fun little fact and and something I love pointing out to people. Uh, so the guy that you haven't met yet because he doesn't pop up until I think like late season one or early season two uh, is, is Scorpius, uh, who is basically like my, my second favorite villain right after Darth Vader. Like the look, the, the, the things he does, the menacing nature of him. He's just one of the coolest bad guys ever. Um, and he has a star Wars connection in that um, at the end of uh, episode three, revenge of the Sith, they uh, had a shot where Darth Vader is standing next to Grand Moff Tarkin and they're watching the uh, Death Star being built. Well, of course, the actor that had played Tarkin was already dead at this point. And so uh, they didn't have the technology to try to CG him yet like they did in Rogue One. So what they did is they actually hired Wayne Pigram, the guy who plays scorpius from farscape and put him in some prosthetic pieces on his face because he already had some resemblance to tarkin and in that shot it's actually him playing tarkin and i think it's so cool that one of the people that you know was on farscape ended up being in star wars as well okay so help me out here because i'm looking at this promotional image on the wikipedia page and there's two characters that did not show up in the pilot on the bookends here okay so i'm looking particularly at the red-headed lady and the background dancer from cats uh okay (laughs) so so i'm I'm gonna be straight up with you man and i don't want to hit you with spoilers in case you're trying to watch this show but one of the things that you have to come to accept about farscape and another thing i deeply appreciate about it is that nobody is safe that Ah. characters die that characters leave the ship that people come and go uh, the one on the right in particular is Chiana. She becomes uh, one of the regulars and one of the most significant characters, believe it or not. She joins halfway through season one or something like that. And as somebody, a stray that Crichton picks up, he has to go rescue her because he has that he has that urge to try to be everybody's hero and, and it mm-hmm. gets him in a lot of trouble. And so she is uh, a very significant character. There's just, just a number of people that come and go on this show. Um, you may find that some of the bad guys from season one end up on the ship for a while by season two. You know, it's just, it, it's it's a rotating cast because, you know, bad things happen to people. Some people die and some people get a chance to leave and don't have to be on the run anymore. And 
you know, th things shift and develop and change. Yeah. The show is never the same from season to season. I think what you're looking at with that promotional image is actually a season, season four, four cast. Yep. Season four. Yeah. So th things change. Um, let, let's just put it that way. No, you know, just da, like, da, da. just like, yeah, just like Groot dies in the first Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, some, sometimes people die, man. Oh, a comic book miniseries. Okay. Oh, oh my God. So, so you want to talk about the comic book? Let's talk about the comic book for a second. <laughs> the comic. The comic book is actually a direct sequel to uh -huh. Farscape, and is basically like a season six. And it was, I think, put out by Boom Studios before Boom Studios was booming the way it is now. Um, and it is fantastic. So if you get into Farscape... Of course it's Boom. Of course it's Boom, because they do all the best stuff. I'm telling you, if you if you end up watching this and you get into it, um, I, I can like lend you the entire comic book run because I got it too. All right, so final verdict on Farscape, Chris. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. It is a, it's very tough to make like an informed opinion based on that pilot. But I'm definitely intrigued. I, I I will probably I will probably continue the series. Um, I'm still watching Deep Space Nine. I'm reading a crap ton of comics, but I'm I'm definitely going to follow up. Well, if you decide to follow up, keep me posted because I want to hear episode by episode your thoughts. There are some stinkers, <laughs> dude. There are some stinkers in season one right. that you have to overcome. You know, while they were trying Listen, to find uh... Next Generation. Uh, let's not even talk about stinkers of a first season. Because the first two seasons of Next Generation, it's it's surprising when you think about how loved and well-remembered Next Generation is. Because there are large swaths of season one and two that are unwatchable of the Next Generation. Yeah, it's, it seems difficult to start at the beginning with that show. I've tried to get into it several times. Just skip to season three. Skip to season three. It's very <laughs> episodic and it's not like a lot of stuff that you really need. Yeah. I might end up eventually give that a try. It's just, you know, more bumpy-headed aliens, no continuity. Eh, <laughs> I'd rather watch Deep Space Nine when it comes to Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, folks. Well, that's it for our pilot season assessment. What are your thoughts about Wolverine and the X-Men? What are your thoughts about Farscape? Have you ever even heard about Farscape? Uh, if you haven't, shame on you. You uh, haven't listened to this I show, apparently. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right <laughs> find us on social media let us know what your thoughts are uh we are available on twitter and instagram at nerd by word and individually at that nerd chris and at that nerd dave and when we come back it's time for some nerd commendations so stick around And we're back, ladies and gentle people, and it is time once again for Chris and I to recommend some nerdy media to you. We're talking, of course, about our patented... Chris, please tell me that you're not recommending something X-Men related today. Nope, I gave you a break. My agenda was spread far enough. But Dave, <laughs> Dave, I've got the words that... A lot of gamers, oddly enough, don't like, but they're magic words for you and I. Turn-based RPG. Oh, I'm there, man. What you got? Yakuza Like a Dragon. Another one of those nifty galifty day one releases on Xbox Game Pass. Yakuza Like a Dragon is a role-playing video game developed and published by Sega. The first mainline title in the Yakuza franchise that is developed as a turn-based RPG. It was released in Japan and Asia for PlayStation 4 on January 16th, 2020, and was released on Game Pass as a day one release. I love this game. 
Spoiler alert, this will probably be my game of the year. This is the most fun I've had in quite some time in gaming. Like, just abjectly fun. I forgot how much I enjoyed the other Yakuza games. I need to re-download them. I think all of them are now on Game Pass. And so it's just so much fun. And then, you know, the turn-based, I've, I've chronicled my struggles with reaction time due to my health conditions. But so turn-based RPGs are a welcome change for me because I can like take my time and strategize. And in this case, team build, you can have up to four characters in your party and one will function as the healer, one will function as a booster, one will function as a striker uh, or a tank or, or what have you um and so like this just game is just stupid stupid fun and it's in typical japanese over-the-top silly bonkers fashion so you don't necessarily need a background in the other yakuza games but it follows uh the main character of ichiban kasuga who is this lackey in um the tojo clan of uh the yakuza a crime syndicate in Camarocho, a fictional, fictionalized uh, borough, if you will, of of Tokyo, and you know, with his in, uh, his adventures and misadventures, as his like coming of age and like really like the wool being removed from his eyes. What I really appreciate about this game and this series as a whole is it's very story driven it's very like the cinematic scenes are quite long so if you're an an add adhd type gamer this may not be for you but if you appreciate good storytelling in a video game and you want to just sit back and watch the scenes play out this is a really really beautiful storytelling uh in video game format so so Ishiban, the your main protagonist, will team up with various characters that he meets along his journey. Um, but he's this just really headstrong, passionate, fiery personality who rushes headlong into situations and sh- creates shenanigans for himself because he just has this bleeding and burning heart and wants to do the right thing. But you know, when it comes to like tact and logic, those are not his strong suit. So he gets into a lot of hijinks, but the turn-based RPG features and the very complex character building of different jobs and character builds that you can have for each person in your party is really, really fascinating. I mean, you can be a musician and beat the crap out of people with a guitar or throw CDs at them. Uh, you can be a bodyguard and have a really nice pinstripe suit. Uh, you can be a police officer and beat them with a nightstick. Um, also, I think my favorite feature so far, um, as as big fans as we are of MST3K, you can go to this movie theater that shows classics that may or may not be of good quality uh depends on who you ask and the main objective in that game mode is to not fall asleep and so as you're falling asleep these suit wearing anthropomorphic sheep slash rams wiggle their hands at you you have to look this up on youtube they wiggle their hands at you trying to get you to fall asleep and you have to punch them so you don't fall asleep and the the if you avoid falling asleep you like get this high score and all this stuff it is the most mind trippy type of stuff 
Um, and this, the arcade feel of this game, I mean, it's made by Sega for Pete's sake. The arcade feel of this game just makes me, like, hits me right in the nostalgia bone, but in a good way. It's not like just blatant nostalgia bait. It's just like really welcoming gameplay wise. And it feels like you're back at the arcade, but in the comfort of your own home without, you know, sweaty teenagers crowding around you and you have to put a quarter there. And so it's all the benefits of an arcade game, uh, but you get to be at home and it's no extra cost if you're a Game Pass subscriber. So this is far and away the most fun that I've had playing a video game in quite some time. So Yakuza Like a Dragon is my nerd commendation for this week. If you like, if you're like a Japanophile, I don't know what the proper term of that is, like me, Japanese history and culture and art is just so awesome to me. Like you're going to love this game. So first of all, I think we need to get you into more anime and manga because you you love Japanese culture so much. Like I'm trying, I'm desperately it. trying. I I went so long without it. I'm watching the Witcher, um, the Witcher anime right now, the recently released about Vesemir, and and I'm enjoying it. So I'm I'm deeply trying. As a kid who never had anime, my kids are obsessed. My friends are obsessed with anime, and it was just I've never been exposed to it. So I'm trying. So you, you already said the magic words here. Uh, you said over-the-top, and you said turn-based RPG, and I love over-the-top stuff. I love turn-based RPGs, and I cannot wait to try this game, man. I'm uh, I'm actually trying to get a little more serious with my setup for a remote play so I can comfortably play from anywhere in the house on a secondary screen since actually sitting down in front of the TV is difficult right now with my toddler running around. So uh, I think this is going to be probably the first thing I'm going to pull up. I'm very excited for this one, man. I will also say, um, I have to ask, since you're into turn-based RPGs, have you played either of the South Park turn-based RPGs that were released? I have not. Now, if you're you're willing to put up with some really, really filthy, filthy humor, um, those are some of the best turn-based RPGs I've played in the last bit, Um, especially um, the second one, um, which is the Fractured Butthole which is sort of a superhero tropey story. You know, everybody's yeah. dressing up as superheroes and stuff, and it kind of pokes fun at superheroes. It is fantastic, and the gameplay has a healthy dose of strategy with its, its combat system. It's uh, probably one of the most fun experiences I've had uh, playing a, a, a RPG in, in, in a hot second because so many of them have abandoned the idea of turn-based combat. So the fact that this uh, Yakuza Like a Dragon game exists makes my heart sing. I'm ready for this, Chris. And and just another feather in the cap of the over-the-top bonkers stuff. This game is content warning, maybe? It's a little bit kinky. Like, it's out there. Like, no kink shaming here. Like, there's one uh, mission, a side mission that you go on, and you hear a baby crying. And so you bring, like, baby formula, and it turns out to be these big, bad, rough-and-tumble Yakuza bosses dressed up, cosplaying as babies as they are nursed by these lovely ladies and then you have to fight them while they're wearing diapers and bibs and i think i sent you a screenshot of it it's just like how crazy over the top this game is and it's so much fun i love it so much that sounds awesome man all right dave this is the oh my god chris how have you not watched these movies yet moment of the week you're talking ghostbusters yeah, so uh, we, we talk a lot about the dangers of nostalgia, uh, and, and I generally agree with this. And there are some nostalgic things going on in this movie, particularly in the third act, that I wish they would have pulled it back a little further from. Um, but at the same time, uh, this movie just really worked for me. 
So first, I'm a big fan of the first Ghostbusters movie, and to some extent, the second Ghostbusters movie as well. I'm not one of these uh, toxic, um, you know, fan bros that had a problem with the um, all female reboot of Ghostbusters. Although I did find that it did not quite hit the same spot because it was kind of going in a lot of ways through the same motions. Scientists discover ghosts are real, open business, blah blah blah. Um, and so, at, much like we talked about earlier in the episode with the X Men, I thought, you know, this this sucker needs to start going into a different direction as a franchise, if if it's going to survive, because you can't do the same thing in New York over and over again and expect, you know, the, to to make a bunch of money. Like people are going to get tired of it. And and lo and behold, here comes Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is essentially a sequel to the uh, the first two movies, um, but it does some different stuff. The, the movie has sort of a a vibe of like one of those Steven Spielberg movies from the eighties about a bunch of kids getting in trouble, like a, a, a shot of Goonies, a shot of ET, the extraterrestrial, you know? And I think that approach worked wonders for the franchise. So here, here's sort of the story in a nutshell, the original Ghostbusters kind of broke up. They had strange relationships and one of them, Egon Spengler uh, basically uh, abandons his family and everything for reasons not clear in the beginning of the movie um, and lives out in a farm in the middle of nowhere, uh, Somerville, Oklahoma, near a mining, uh, old mine uh, that has been shut down. And when he dies, this whole farm and all his equipment and everything there is left to his daughter, who is, you know, uh, broke, has a couple of kids. um, And she decides to move out there since she has nowhere else to go. And uh, the kids, uh, Phoebe, um, being the main one, a, a sort of science-minded uh, young girl, sort of start uh, exploring who their grandfather was that they never knew about. And really, you know, I'm giving a, away a couple of things here. So spoiler alert, because at the beginning of the movie, you're not even clear um, who this person is that died and what their connection is to the original Ghostbusters. But you start finding like pieces of equipment around the farm and then Ecto-1, the car pops up in the garage or in a barn, I think. So... On, on the one hand, it trades a little bit in that nostalgia, but for the most part, what I love about this movie is that it is very much Phoebe's movie. Uh, she's played by Carrie Coon and is sort of this perfect, I guess, middle school-aged misfit that that you and I, I think, have encountered so often. Somebody who's just just five degrees off from being cool, you know, just a little awkward, a little weird, doesn't really you know, manage to make those social connections very well, but it's just a really neat, good-hearted kid. And she's sort of the heart of this movie, going through this um, this, this journey of self-discovery and of trying to figure out who she is and, and who her family is and, and how that, you know, how she relates to this grandfather she never knew and what they have in common. And that, I think, makes this movie click really, really well. Now, the third act kind of has this this moment where the original Ghostbusters, geriatric as they are, kind of pop up, um, which I don't think was really needed. And and that's where the movie starts trading too much on nostalgia. Um, but there's also a very beautiful moment where, where you know, um, Phoebe sort of encounters the ghost of her grandfather for a brief moment. And that, that felt like an earned moment. Um, because it's sort of a, a catharsis, a sort of release of the story of her trying to figure out who she is. So I really, really loved this movie because it was so different 
uh, from the other Ghostbusters movie. It really tried to, although it traded some on nostalgia, move things forward a little bit, you know, get out of New York, get into sort of you know, this, this really dusty town, Oklahoma, with the mining background and everything, um, focusing on kids, getting into trouble, which is always a sort of a genre of movies I always appreciated. Um, this one worked for me. I wish they would have dialed back a little bit on the nostalgia, particularly in the third act. But other than that, man, this movie really sung. So my nerd commendation uh, this week is definitely Ghostbusters Afterlife. I really liked it, man. So as I as I hinted, not so subtly in the tease, I have not seen a single Ghostbusters film. It's one of those, oh my God, type of things. Like, just never got around to it. Um, so just peripherally, like from the sidelines, I was concerned when this movie was announced because of exactly what you referenced, the toxic backlash to you've got women in my Ghostbusters type of situation. So I was concerned that this might be a quote unquote course correction, but I'm glad to hear that it's not the case. And I think it's high time that I've uh, visited this franchise. And I will say like, when you bring it right down to it, like this, this movie is female led as well. Like it is squarely right. focuses on, on, on Phoebe. I think, <sighs> Like that, all that toxicity around the last Ghostbusters movie was so troubling to me. It's just, it is so uncomfortable, especially because I came out of the movie not wholly satisfied myself, but I didn't want to ever be lumped in with all right. these, you know, dude bros, right? But the problem was just that it felt like very much like we were talking about Wolverine and the X Men. It's, it's a rehash, you know, it's just, it's something that we've seen before kind of just being retold rather than moving in a, in a new direction. And, and I think that's even with the nostalgia baked into it visually, you know, with the location, with the kind of characters we're following Ghostbusters afterlife was a, a step in a very different direction that I really appreciated. Speaking of toxic dude, bros, you had a tweet go viral uh, so to speak, dunking on one of said idiots. So congratulations to you. Still, the, the dunking is continuing as we uh, as we are uh, recording this. Uh, I had to cup check because my phone is going off with notifications yeah. as they're trying to make the, make an argument against what was a pretty, I think, cogent point. So, yeah, fun times. Uh, nothing quite like hanging out on Twitter and and fighting the dude bros. <laughs> yeah, consistently. Yeah, consistently. All right, folks. Well, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. If you like what you heard, please get on your favorite podcasting platform. Like, subscribe, review, let us know what you think, and listen. You can find us on any podcasting platform you can imagine. We're on Apple uh, Podcasts. We're on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio. Uh, the only thing we're not on right now is the Radio Radio, but we do have our very own very spiffy website, nerdbyword.com. And also be sure to hit us up on social media at nerdbyword on Twitter and Instagram. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.